In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 67 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron. And I'm Patch. And today we are extremely excited to be talking... Taking... No, it's talking about the final film in the recent Planet of the Apes prequel trilogy, War for the Planet of the Apes. Yes, sir, we sure are. In this one, we follow Seether. Seether? Caesar? Wow, is this going to be a reoccurring thing for us, Patrick? <laughs> oh, boy. We apologize up front, listeners. We're, we're becoming, we got the simian flu. We, we do. We're losing like... our ability to talk. We didn't even plan this. How perfect. <laughs> well, in this one, we follow Caesar, soon to be our own leader, apparently. Further on his journey at, as humanity and the apes collide uh, in what amounts to be truly a winner-take-all battle for the planet. Of course, it's a lot more nuanced than that, and that is precisely why it's going to make for a great discussion. So we hope that you'll stick around, or skip ahead if you're in a hurry, for that coming up soon. But first, Patrick, what have you been up to this week, my friend? Well, it's been a busy week, but I've been trying to uh, find a way to get in some other things that are not work-related. And my boss, who he and I talk about movies quite a bit, and specifically Christopher Walken, his claim to fame is that he tells anybody that he's bringing on as a new hire that when he introduces me, the reason he hired me was because I do a great Chris Walken impression. I'll leave that up to our listeners and whoever knows me to make an objective opinion on whether that is true. But when conversations lend themselves to talking about Chris Walken, typically he likes to bring up a movie that he likes with Chris Walken in it or with, um, you know, something Chris Walken related. So this conversation was no different. And there was a movie that he recommended to me back. It's a 1983 movie called brainstorm. What? Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's very out there. Uh, it stars him, Chris Walken, Natalie Wood, a couple of other actors I'm not real familiar with. And it's about the this team of scientists who have created this technology that allow a person to basically, essentially, it, it, it would be the equivalent of like GoProing their life, recording their life, and being able to have another person kind of plug into that recording and experience all the sights and sounds and smells and tastes of that experience. And so they discover this, um, this technology through, you know, a bunch of experiments and science. And then of course the government kind of gets a hold of it. Another company, a big company tries to take it and use it for ill gotten gains. And there's also some internal struggles. It's not a great movie. The premise is really what made me intrigued by it. And the reason I enjoyed it so much had to do with less the plot itself, because I think this plot has been used um, at least loosely in other in other films. And um, in particularly, there was a, what is it? The is like black, not black sales. There's a Netflix series about technology. Black Mirror. Thank you. It's something with black in it. Yeah. And this was kind of the the kind of the an early version of what Black Mirror explores. Of course, Black Mirror Mirror is more of a a long-form storytelling anthology series, whereas this is a feature film. But what I appreciated most about this was not only the fact that Natalie Wood's in it, and so is Chris Walken, two of my people that I enjoy seeing on the screen, 
but it 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 felt very refreshing you know for a 1980s movie this is something that was much like it didn't feel like something that was regurgitated it was like an original idea something that i can definitely appreciate i had a chance to be on the retro rewind podcast talking about tron and that was the thing that was one of the things that i really enjoyed discussing was the fact that at the time that story felt ahead of its time it felt like these guys who created it and who came up with the story were like what about this and what if we tried this and in a lot of ways especially with the announcement particularly from disney of all these movies that are coming out in the next two or three years one of which being an original you know an original idea that's not a sequel or you know a a, a reboot or a reimagining uh no offense to disney for being the cash cow that they are but having films out there that make an attempt to be somewhat refreshing and have original ideas. And so Brainstorm to me was kind of an expression of that. And the fact that it was back in the 80s kind of didn't devalue it. I mean, it diminishes it a little bit because you're thinking, oh, yeah, it's definitely a 1980s movie. It doesn't necessarily hold up. But from an ideological standpoint and from a plot standpoint, it has a lot of good stuff to offer. Um, and you can find it on, I believe it's on Amazon. It's hard to find anywhere else because it's just not a real popular movie, but I, I, I appreciated it as a film for what it tried to do and, and the story it told. But, uh, at, on a certain level, I enjoyed it as a, as a movie from an entertainment point of view, because it was just kind of cool. It, it was neat to see how they used camera work to sort of replicate the perspective and vantage points using some walleye camera uh, lens work and things like that but Chris Walken was of course Chris Walken as he is in most films he didn't dance in this one I don't believe he usually dances in most of his movies but uh, but it was good it was um, it was definitely something that was worth uh, seeing once I don't know that I would watch it again but if you're into kind of cool sci-fi you can check that out so brainstorm from 1983 take the way way back machine and check it out yeah, that's, you know, the premise is what initially grabbed me right away when you said it. I was kind of like, wow, that's that sounds incredibly unique. And I, I'm surprised that I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's one of those that I hadn't heard of it either until my boss mentioned it. And I was like, why do I not know about this? Because, you know, I usually know about most Chris Walken movies, even if I haven't seen all of them. And it just goes to show you the kind of the, the breadth of his work. <laughs> As I was looking up that movie, I saw about 15 other movies that he was in, and I was going, okay, well, I guess I'm not as walking versed as I thought I was. So right, well, but I think good, yeah. I think that um, you know it's similar to today's day and age, and for those of us that watch a lot of movies, I'm going to have those in my memory 10 years from now. I'm going to remember having seen some of these obscure films that were not. Oscar contenders that were not blockbusters that didn't make a lot of money. Whereas those are, these are the same version of those from the eighties. You know, I, I would not have seen all of those. So I think that that's probably why we didn't hear about all of them. This would, this would have been a, you know, three star average type of film back in the the early eighties. And so unless you were watching all of the movies that came out then, instead of just focusing on the big hitters, you might not have uh, noticed that this one was there. Yeah, so it's nice to be able to find those things. I appreciate my boss who can kind of expose me to those types of things. He and I share an affinity to film in general. And so when he 
recommends um, a couple of them to me. I'm anxious to watch them. There's another one that uh, I may I'll have to watch it, but uh, I may or may not be recommending in the next few weeks. It's on my list too, but I'll save that for another podcast. Good deal. Looking forward to hearing that. Uh, well, I watched a couple movies. The one that I want to mention just briefly is a bio- biopic of an Arkansas Razorback football player named Brandon Burlesworth. And the movie is actually called Greater. And this story is incredibly close to home for me. Not just home as in I obviously was in Arkansas when this was taking place uh, in 1998, at least the majority of, of his big career uh, goals were, were, were being won and had. But Brandon is a pretty unique story. He was a walk-on to play football, and Grader essentially tells the story of his growing up pretty fast-forward style up until he gets to high school and wants to play for the Razorbacks. He joins the team as a walk-on and ultimately ends up being a first-team All-American and third-round NFL draft pick. Just an incredible story. Perhaps one of the best, if not the most successful walk-on story in history, actually. They now have named a trophy after him uh, posthumously uh, for the best walk-on or the most successful walk-on in college football each year. They get the Brandon Burlesworth Trophy. Um, But Brandon, sadly, just literally days after being drafted by the Indianapolis Colts in the third round, uh, died in a car crash in Arkansas. Um, and it was it was just a tragic loss of a, a brilliant young man who was incredibly inspirational. And so I'll be honest, you know, this came out, I think, in 2015, maybe. I don't think it was a 2016 release. It might have been last year. And I hadn't got around to it yet. I was really expecting it to be about football, Patrick because it's about a football player. <laughs> and, right. Yeah, you would expect that. Right. And and there were there was a little bit of football in there. And I think to be honest, I would probably say I connected with this film more than the average person because this was one of the greatest years that we've had in Arkansas Razorback football in the last couple of decades. We were undefeated most of the year up until a crucial game against another undefeated team the Tennessee Volunteers, and it ended in just miserable fashion, um, a, a, a freak misstep by Brandon where he tripped our quarterback, our quarterback dropped the ball, all of this in the last minute or so of the game that led to us losing what potentially could have been a national championship season. Um, we've never quite gotten back to those heights, uh, to that level. And so it, it was also the year that Brandon ended up being voted first-team All-American. So despite that mistake... But what this story was all about was it was all about Brandon's faith. And it kind of blew me away because I didn't know it was going to be a quote-unquote Christian movie. But I'll tell you, it was better than most Christian movies. It, it definitely had some cheese factor to it. The acting is not wonderful across the board. But the heart is there. And the way that they handle the story is by flashing between the present and the past. So Brandon's, you know, career and growing up and it, it is offset by his brother, Marty, who was the closest person in his life currently dealing with 
the pain of having lost his brother and not accepting it and wrestling with his own faith and the challenges to it um, that you're going to have in feeling like someone was taken from you too soon. And it's just really, really well done and balanced with Brandon's own just unwavering faithfulness and hope and belief that things are going to work out and you just work as hard as you can and you accept the result and that's okay. So I really highly recommend it. I think it's a a very good movie. It is worth your time. It's not going to be, you know, a five-star documentary type type of film for everybody, but it certainly is entertaining and motivational and he's a great person for your kids to learn about and, and emulate because he's a story of, of working hard and having a dream and not saying no or not, not taking no for an answer, rather just going at it and going at it and going at it and going at it until he achieves it. And I, I really enjoyed it. Good, man. I, when you recommended it to me and I think you had it in our, um, in our queue for the voodoo thing, it made me want to eventually watch it. I couldn't get around to it, but at some point I'm going to pick it up and, and check it out because I remember it coming out. My dad recommended it. He was excited about it coming out and he saw it. I think, I think he saw it cause I think I remember him saying he loved it. And I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously you and I, we share the, uh, the nice rivalry between our universities, but Brandon Burlsworth and his story and everything that I knew about him living in Arkansas was just incredible. And it was so tragic to see how his life ended so soon after being drafted. And I don't know if you mentioned this, but um, they retired his number, the Colts. They did, actually, indeed. Actually re- retired his number, which I don't know if that's ever happened. I mean, or yeah, numbers have been retired, duh. But I, I just remember that being kind of the quintessential moment where I was like, well, who is this guy, Brandon Burlesworth? I heard about him. I knew he was a guy with glasses that were very much – uh, the accent of his face <laughs> at school. And so getting a chance to see this movie uh, really excites me. And despite the the lack of Oscar caliber acting, I'm anxious to, to watch the story unfold on film. Well, he had his number retired by the Colts without, not only without playing a game for them, but literally without signing a contract. That was part of the tragedy was wow. that Brandon had worked so hard. So he, he started school without a scholarship his mom eventually is able to pay for one year, and he had to work his butt off to get on scholarship. It's just – it's an incredible story. But all of this leads up to you know, him not actually getting to sign his contract. He was a few days away from complete financial security, and then he dies. And that was another part of why it was just so hard for the family to understand how this could be happening to them. So, yeah, it, it's great. And there's, there's one really good shot as well in the film. They show Arkansas and Brandon holding up this trophy. It looks like a boot. It's golden. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Patrick. Have you ever seen this golden boot with, with uh, a Arkan- number of times? Yeah, Arkansas players hold it up a lot, and it's it's the oh, trophy it, that we. I'm going to mute him. I what? wish I could. Gosh, I wish I could mute Patrick. But it's the trophy that Arkansas holds up when they beat LSU or LS who? I think it's LS LS who? Um, the Tiggers, Patrick's team. Yes, that 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 team. When we win, which is quite often, we hold up this big trophy that looks like Arkansas and LSU put together, and and Brandon is holding that up in this movie. And, and Patrick can't really say anything bad because Brandon's dead and it's a sad story. And, and to, to say anything right now, like against that would be just, just inhumane and rude. 
He's he's flipping out over there. <laughs> no, I'm holding up my one one ape. Apes Apes, this. apes, apes together apes, strong. Apes, okay. Apes together strong. <laughs> anyway, um razzing aside, uh yeah, check that one out if you guys are interested. All right, Patrick, are you ready to move into this? Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Okay. Spoiler alert, we're gonna spoil the heck out of War for the Planet of the Apes. If you haven't seen it, go see it. And and not just because I want you to go see it so that you can come back and listen to this podcast this podcast, but because it is a phenomenal phenomenal film and so i'm telling can you we, please can we safely say that we're going to spoil the other two as well because i think we'll call back to the first two as well can we can we just say that too yes let's say that we are going okay. to spoil the entire trilogy and frankly yeah whatever go yeah. see the whole flipping trilogy if you're here <laughs> listening to us and you haven't you're wrong so that being said patrick golly <laughs> All right, I don't know what Patrick thought about this film. I've already gotten some of my thoughts out on social media for those of you that follow the show or, or follow me or, or are in our Facebook discussion group. Patrick didn't get a chance to see the movie until just this afternoon, and then he was busy, so I have not gotten his reactions. So let's do that first, Patrick. What did you think of this movie? Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> That's what I thought of it. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> I can't tell what kind of ape I was. Well, I will tell you this. I watched the original back in 2011 when it came out with James Franco and uh, Andy Serkis before I actually you know, knew how amazing he was and never saw the second one. Like for some reason, I really enjoyed the first one and then the second one came around and I just did not get a chance to see it. So the third one rolls around and I guess I, I told myself, okay, I need to probably catch up on these. So I watched the first one again earlier this week watched the second one and was surprisingly blown away at how good it was. I was not expecting what I got necessarily. And then the third one rolls around and I'm in the theater and I'm watching it in 3d, which is something rare for me because I don't like spending a thousand dollars at the movie theater before buying things like popcorn and overpriced candy. And wow. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was unlike anything that I'd ever well, expected. I didn't know what to expect from this. And so when I when I left the theater, I thought, now that's a trilogy that I want to revisit. And that's a trilogy that was, you know, this comes on the heels of me talking about Brainstorm and a trilogy that, yes, it's, a, it's not an original property, but it's an original story. We're not trying to retell the original Planet of the Apes in the future on, you know, some weird desolate planet with Charlton Heston saying things like damn dirty apes, we are telling a new story and we're telling it with a refreshing take on today's sociological landscape and all that stuff I can get behind. And I just loved it. I mean, there were moments when I almost didn't, but almost cried uh, moments of tenderness, moments of laughter, moments of excitement and um, to use the word lightly, moments of humanity <laughs> among the, 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 the ape tribes of, of Caesar and his gang. And I just, I, I was so, I felt so refreshed watching it and thinking, this is a trilogy for the ages, man. This is something that I am proud to say that we own the first two and I cannot wait to own this third one because it's a trilogy that I want to expose more people to that haven't experienced it. My dad in particular the last one I think he saw was the the Mark Wahlberg attempt to reboot the original franchise. And I was like, no, give it a shot. Try it again. 
and I'm going to watch it with you, you know, if, if that's what it takes. So five star for me. Excellent. Yay. I love it when we connect like that. So I actually watched the first two of these with my father when I was in Arkansas recently on that vacation. He had not seen them either. And so that was a really good time. I got to, to introduce him to the first two. And of course he liked them. I knew he would just like, I know your dad's gonna, gonna love them as well. But I got to agree wholeheartedly for me, this is up there with any other trilogy of the 21st century, not named Lord of the Rings. And I had this debate or was part of a discussion about this rather online in a group um, just this weekend of, of what other trilogies in the 21st century stand up to this. And there are very, very few, um, you know, Batman could be thrown out there, uh, the, the Nolan Batman trilogy, but that has a, a pretty, you know, m a weaker point in, in Dark Knight Rises. For me, the thing that was most amazing about War for the Planet of the Apes is the fact that we got a third film of a trilogy that was the high point. That is absolutely unheard of. Almost always, it's the middle movie where these things peak. They, they'll have a decent start, and then they'll have a really incredible second movie, like Empire Strikes Back or even Catching Fire was really well done. Um, trying to think of more uh, The Dark Knight uh, in the Batman trilogy. But very, very rarely do you have the strongest movie be your last movie. Toy Story might be the only other comparison that I can come up with off the top of my head. Yeah, but that's getting ruined now with the Toy Story 4. So it, it is. And, it, and it's also really close and hard because like all the Toy Stories are amazing. That's for sure. <laughs> I can agree with that. Too. It, luckily, it's not quite in the 21st century conversation <laughs> <laughs> because the first one came out too early, thankfully. Yeah. But um, but seriously, dude, when I walked out of this movie, I did cry. Um, I got teary eyed a little bit in the movie, but when I cry cried was after the film on my way home. I, I kept choking up as I was thinking about it. And then it happened to me again the next day. So almost 24 hours later, when I was taking notes for the podcast, I was writing things down and I was starting to get teary eyed. And I was like, what is going on? This story really affected me. Um, and Gosh, isn't that just incredible? I mean, we're talking about a movie that is darn near, what, 75, 80%, would you say, apes and CGI, not human, or not CGI, motion capture, but not actual human acting in this film. There's a great length of this movie that takes place without any humans in it. And without a lot of dialogue. And I mean, without a lot of, with subtitles. It's almost like a foreign film. Well, even the subtitles, though, are very minimal. I mean, we're, we're talking about conversations that... At best, the longest conversation we have is with the colonel and Caesar, and it's really just the colonel kind of spouting off a monologue. So it's, I mean, it's it's not heavy with dialogue at all. We're we're talking about facial expressions and and camera shots and all this stuff that help to elevate the story. So I mean, it's it's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I I loved it. I can't wait to own it. Like you said, I will be anxiously awaiting the blu-ray release of this very rarely does that happen for me because i'm always you know on to the next movie and not that i don't love a movie but i just i'm always seeing something new so revisiting stuff is not high on the priority list but this this also may be one that i go see again in the theater and i have not done that in a long long time because i'm just constantly having to see something new um to it's review not called la la land right that well that's yeah exactly 
actually that would be the the last one and that and that came before this show kind of opened doors as well for more review opportunities through mm-hmm. press screenings and things like that where i was yeah. able to go to these films in the theater so now i just don't do it i just don't go see something more than once because I've got more more options, and uh, and what I want to do is I want to go see War again. Patrick, I'm seeing Dunkirk tomorrow night, and uh, lucky uh, I know. And all I I'm still thinking about War. Like I can't even quite get myself refocused into hype hype mode for Dunkirk because this movie still has its you know eight paws around me. <laughs> all right, well let's let's dig in a little bit as to why this has so strongly affected both of us. And, you know, I just want to, listeners, react here and say, remember that this is how we feel about this movie. I thought War for the Planet of the Apes was a fantastic example of what we're all about. Because it took me through a whole cycle of emotions. I felt some empathy at times. I felt some serious anger. I felt humor and levity. I definitely felt sadness. Um, I felt hope. And that's the kind of movie that gets that epic tag. And so I, th- I felt this one was, was very much an epic. And I also felt that it was as much a battle for Caesar's soul and about Caesar's arc as a character as it was about humanity versus the apes. Did you... Did you feel that way at all about it? I, I didn't pick up on that until this film, because I think what the trilogy does in a lot of ways is if you look at it that way, yes, I can definitely see that. Whereas watching it for the first time, uh, Rise seems like a great little origin story. <laughs> and then and then you have, uh, you have Dawn, which explores his... Um, I guess his his power as as the head ape and kind of him in his quote element, but yeah, I think I think as a whole, the whole trilogy is an exploration of his 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 you know his his war for his soul eventually because themes from the second movie that that stem and that kind of bleed over from the first movie really take center stage in the third one, particularly uh, apes don't kill apes. The idea that, and and the value of, of his, his love for humans, or his, or le- less more his, less more that's not a word, uh, less his, his value for humans and more for his equality among apes and humans because of his relationship with his quote dad, and what I, what I loved about this trilogy was the fact that. I think you mentioned it on uh, social media that every movie, each movie has a different tone to it. You know, Rise feels very different than Dawn, which feels not as different, but still different than than War. And at the same time, there's this thread of Caesar through all three of them. And we see him go from not only evolving as an ape and as an intelligent, more sentient being, but we see that element of his soul being kind of explored and exposed because he's challenged. He's challenged in, in all three of these. So, yeah, I, I picked up on that um, more so this time around in watching Rise again and then 
uh, you know, seeing him as a centerpiece, but, uh, but not at first, it was just a great trilogy to me at first. And then, um, this became kind of more of the forefront. So, yeah, I, I do think that very strongly about how they are, they are all three different and, and drastically different, uh, in comparison to the, to the majority of trilogies that we get, uh, rise is, is definitely a different animal <laughs> to use a fun pun. Uh, than than Dawn and like you said Dawn is probably closer to war but the difference in Dawn is that you have this element of humans working together with the apes there's there's a genuine it feels like it feels like you know everything goes bad in the first one and we get to see humanity kind of effing things up uh, for lack of a better term they're they're you know continued prodding and and a desire to test things on uh, these animals ends up creating the virus that wipes everything out. And so there's this idea of humanity bad. Um, there's some good, but they're making poor choices. And then, you know, as the apes start to gain this level of intelligence in Dawn, we get this band of humans that comes together with them, and we, we get to see the two different groups and the two different ideologies fighting against each other. You have the apes and the humans that, that do want to work together, and you, you have a sense of, okay, maybe this could work, right? Because that's what Caesar wants. Caesar wants them to coexist, and there are some humans that want them to coexist. And so then the tone once we get to war is just all out, okay, now we know it's not going to happen. It, there is no, there's not going to be a, a, an us and them coexisting. And for me, when Caesar makes that first gesture, uh, after capturing the human soldiers, when they, when they do the first uh, raid there at the very beginning of the film, and he lets the human suit soldiers go, and he says, you know, I'm going to send a message. Maybe he'll show mercy. Maybe he'll understand and, and, and see this as, as a good sign and leave us alone. I, I had no doubt that Caesar was not, that was not going to happen. Right. And well, yeah, with the title like war, you don't think it's going <laughs> to, well, well. right. But I'm just saying, I mean, the movie leads us up to that with it, the way it's, it's done. It's not just the title that, that throws it out there. Right. I agree. I but agree. that, that opening scene, <laughs> talk about setting the tone. I, you know, I want to mention it because I was so drawn in and I was engaged this whole film from moment one till the, till the very end. And when we start with those tracking shots from behind of the soldiers walking through the forest with their helmets and they've got, you know, call signs on them. And then we see the apes and we see donkeys written on them and we see, Oh my gosh, they're like mules. They're carrying weaponry, dude. I mean, Oh, I just, I was giddy. The way that that was shot, that fight scene, <laughs> was incredible. And I, and I think it's all the better because we didn't have much of that. I don't know if you picked up on this, but there's only like two or three battles in this entire movie, and it's a long movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a that, – that first sequence, I, I wanted to bring that up because I – having experienced this in 3D, that was probably one of the more versatile scenes there. Um, I, I thought – Again, I don't like spending money on 3D movies because it's expensive, and I feel like that's more of a 
Uh, it's more of a reward for me. Like, hey, this movie is worthy of being in IMAX, or this I'm more, you know, this movie is worthy of being in 3D for my movie experience. Most of the time, I'm okay with just your nice digital screen. But particularly when the arrows start falling, and those tracking shots at the beginning, but the arrows falling and just just waylaying all these soldiers, that to me was such a great opening to a film. It set the tone, not for all the battle sequences that we weren't going to get. But for the, for the, for the, just the, the, the rivalry, the, the sense of, of enemies that we were getting to, I can't really word it correctly, but I think it's more of the, we, we, from that opening battle, we, we, we know what's happening. Like mm-hmm. we're right in the thick of it. We don't have to get a bunch of exposition. Uh, we are, we are told through these visuals, the, the depth of this, uh, of this war, and what's been going on for the last, you know, five, ten years since um, since dawn, and uh, and it was visceral to me. <laughs> I, I was actually a little confused at first because I didn't. I was like, why do they have donkey on the back? And wait, why are they using apes? I didn't think apes and were were with people. And then we find out why later on. And uh, and wow, I mean, it just made those those reasons even even more visceral because they call back to that second one with, with Koba and, and his philosophy and how there's still some disciples that are around even after his, uh, his death. So yeah, it was, it was good, man. That opening, I mean, it, it just grabbed you right then. And I was, I was in from there. So one of the things that when I want to go back to Caesar for a second and his character arc, um, you know, he's, he's got so many great qualities of leadership. Um, and then, you know, father, he has a fatherly quality about him. And then he ends up getting sucked into this revenge story and it becomes, it becomes a vendetta almost going after the Colonel. I mean, he's, he's very, and he's very, he's very clear about it. I think he's aware and he recognizes it. He's, he's not so blood crazy that he is not thinking straight. He's still trying to make the best rational decisions that he can even, you know, within the context of taking himself out of the leadership role. Um, but for me, I just loved watching his character progress through that. And the reason that it was so impactful was because of Andy Circus. And so I think we need to talk about Andy Circus because this is a guy who you and I have, have been huge fans uh, for years. And I think most moviegoers now know Andy and by his name, I, you know, that was probably not the case 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but most people now know Andy Serkis is responsible for Gollum. And for those that aren't aware, Andy Serkis is Caesar in this film trilogy. And also King Kong. And also King Kong and Peter Jackson's King Kong as yeah. well. That's correct. Man, man, oh man, oh man. I, I will tell you straight up, Patrick. I think that this performance is worthy of an Oscar. I would have to wholeheartedly agree with, or at you least on an that. Oscar nomination. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah, give him give him some props. Don't you don't have to give him the award, but at least put him in the category because the way in which he emotes with his face and with his body language. I mean, we're talking mocap here. We're not talking. Yes, we're talking CGI. These were not actual apes. You know, no apes were harmed in the making of this film. But you're talking about a guy who had to live in both a human and an ape mentality with the way he walked, with the way he talked. And we're talking, we're talking an 
literally an evolution of his character from rise to dawn to war. And, and I love the fact that his speech slowly increases. It slowly advances. But even by the third one, he doesn't say a lot that his leader, it's almost like his leadership and his ability to just have a physical presence is enough to get people to follow him. Um, I loved it's, it's right at the tail end of that first battle and we see, I guess it's his perspective. We don't know it's his perspective, but we start assuming it is if we've, you know, we've become familiar with them, but we see this first person point of view of this entity walking down a row of all these apes and they're all holding their arms out in submission and we're like, oh my goodness, who is this? And then we're like, oh yeah. And then the the camera turns around and it's Caesar. He has not said a word. He has not said a thing. His presence just brings people to submission and says, here's here's who you are. So um, I think for him, for Andy Circus, his ability to give that kind of like physical performance, I think outdoes most people's just verbal performance. And I think that's why it doesn't require a huge script. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. I think um, for those that haven't seen it in action, you can actually look up video of Andy Serkis performing as Caesar. He and the team put together kind of a little reel that, that or a little highlight video that shows him giving a speech as Caesar. And then it, it slowly copies over with the CGI to show what it would look, what it looks like when the motion capture and is all complete and all the animation is done on top of his performance. And you can see that the eyes and the facial movements and all of that in the performance is all right there. Um, I mean, even from a physicality standpoint, when you do this mocap work, like he has to walk around like that. Exactly. He's not, (laughs) you know, that's not uh, CGI. That's Andy, like with his body contorted, much as he had to contort his body when he played Gollum. Uh, it's just, he's he's phenomenal. I mean, he is one-of-a-kind treasure to the acting world. And, I mean, he has almost single-handedly, I believe there's one other really stud actor in this, and I cannot for the life of me remember his name. I want to say it's Doug something. Do you know his name? I don't. There is another, another really good mocap artist out there as well, actor. But, you know, Andy has created a a type of acting in Mm -hmm. essence so i i really hope that he gets his due and frankly i really hope that this movie gets its due because if if, if you're going to see a modern blockbuster nominated for an oscar i I will be very upset if if at the end of the year someone tries to tell me the academy tries to tell me this is not one of the eight best movies of the of the year i i just do not see that happening um and i and i think because of the epic scale of this, there is a possibility that this could break through. And we, we shall see. Um, you know, they're they're very unlikely, I think, to ever give it to a comic book film, and this gets around that by not being mm. one. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I, I certainly hope that his performance is recognized. And if they don't give him an acting Oscar uh, or best actor nomination type type thing, maybe they create their own category for this. Well, I was just about to say when when the Academy opened up the Oscar nominations for best picture and then started including animated features. I think that because of the, because of just the value that, that companies like Pixar were, were bringing to the table in terms of just really 
good quality motion pictures. I think he's going to do the same thing for the, at least I hope he would do something similar for the acting category that maybe they create a niche category for best CGI actor or something like that. Now that sounds really far fetched, but I think his performances would merit at least that kind of discussion at the Oscar table. Agreed. Well, while we're talking performances, there's one other one that, that stands out and that's the human counterpart uh, of Woody Harrelson. When I saw these trailers and from one moment, I will say this about the trailers, the marketing for this film did not do it any favors. I don't think it was bad, but I don't think that it accurately depicted the type of film we were going to get either. Um, it just, it just did not seem to have the same tone as what I, I saw in some of the marketing, but I was lukewarm on Woody Harrelson in the trailers. I was like, Oh boy, is this going to be an over the top performance? Is this going to be one of those kind of crazy, you know, humans that almost takes the film down a notch because he's just too much, right? He's just too much of a, of a presence. I was blown away by Woody Harrelson in this film. You want to talk about feeling scared and feeling tense? I was tense. Like, he terrified me. I think you hit the nail right on the head. He is... (laughs) Woody Harrelson has come a long way as an actor for me in a lot of ways that Robert Downey Jr. has with his, um, his role as Tony Stark in Iron Man. I think he's made a name for himself. Woody Harrelson in his role in the hunger games. That was a a role that Mm -hmm. I had to be sold on and he sold it to me. Yeah. And so I was more apt to see him in this, but not knowing a lot about the plot other than what the trailers give you, which like I, like you said, just wasn't very much. You felt like you were going to expect the Woody Harrelson baddie role or whatever, or, and watching him particularly, the moment that we see him for the first time, that slow motion turnaround, black face. You talking about the cave, the stare down? Yeah. Oh, yeah, just, dude, I get just, chills just thinking about it. Just, just after he he mows down um, Caesar's oh. wife and son, which I'm 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 still upset about that. Um, <sighs> uh, as a <laughs> moment of silence for just, for blue eyes. I mean, just ugh. Um, but that moment. I think was sort of a microcosm to me of the type of performance that we got from him. I don't feel like there is some criticism that he became sort of the third act villain that we've gotten so used to in a lot of big blockbusters. I don't agree. I I think what he brought to the table specifically with his conversation with Caesar and what happened after that by giving the, uh, the monkeys or the apes, excuse me, water and and grain and food or whatever i think those moments right there they didn't say much about his humanity necessarily but they gave me at least a tiny bit of sympathy intermixed with terror because for a small moment in those two scenes next door to each other i felt a little bit of connection with him i was like i can i can understand where you're coming from and the sacrifice that you had to make the camera work in that particular scene where he's talking is so great because as he's talking, the camera sort of, it doesn't really move from him, but it sort of goes in and out of focus from what he's doing and focuses in on the picture of his son. And so we're getting all these little pieces of information about 
the story that he's telling and giving you little backstory and just giving you the weight of what happened with what he had to do. And so we've talked about this on the show and even offline, how when you can give roundedness to a villain, that's what makes a villain work in a, in a big movie like this is when you give somewhat of a level of sympathy for that. And so when, when, when I had that, um, he became a very, uh, appealing, interesting, intriguing villain. One that whose demise <laughs> was satisfying to me. It wasn't just a, ah, 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 I got you, you know, revenge. It was something else entirely. It felt very weighted. It felt very earned and it made sense to me. It didn't feel cheap to me. So I, I, I thought his performance was great. Yeah, I, I did as well. And I wondered if you were going to feel that way that you, you mentioned in, in your, your brief talk there about how you had a moment of sympathy for him because I did as well. There is the scene where he is talking to Caesar the first time that Caesar is captured and he apologizes. And I'll, I'll tell you, man, like it was genuine. It felt genuine to me. He's talking to Caesar and he says, I'm sorry about your family or I'm sorry I killed your, your family. You know, he's like, that's not, was not my intention. I was there to kill you. Like he, I mean, it's not that making him any less cold hearted. Right. But no, like, right. <laughs> but he clearly did not mean to do that. Like that wasn't his intention. He was there to kill Caesar. Mm-hmm. And I almost, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say I have a respect for that, but in a, in a, in a, in a sense I do in a sense of we're talking about two different generals going into battle against each other mm-hmm. who we may or may not agree with their ideals, but this has happened throughout history. Right. In in some ways, he reminds me of Zod from Man of Steel in that he has a purpose and that the collateral damage is, it's not that he feels bad about it. I think he does, but he's just not thinking about that. If his purpose was to kill Caesar, how was he to know that that was his family? To him, those were two apes that were in his way from fulfilling his mission. And I don't necessarily like support that idea, obviously, because I'm you know pro Caesar. But at the same time, if I'm living in that kind of mentality, it it's just part of the job. It's part of what happened. I mean, he went in there to do one thing, and there just happened to be other apes there, which he knew that he wasn't out to slaughter anybody. He was there. I love his honesty. Uh, in short, I love the fact that he was very honest about that. And when he said that, I didn't feel the sympathy for his apology until I heard his monologue later. Right. Like his monologue later helped support that exactly. particular thing. Exactly. It it made him, it fleshed him out. It made him well-rounded. It, it kind of affirmed that initial apology. He actually apologizes again. He says it twice. I, I picked up on it. It was very distinct that he mentioned it twice. And in a different time, he says, you know, again, I'm sorry. I, I mm-hmm. didn't, that's not what, I mean, I know you're mad. Bro, but like that's not what Bro. I was there to do. Um, and then the other moment of of real humanity for him came for me when he said, "I recognize that I would have to sacrifice my only son for humanity to be saved." Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I love about this film, and I love about storytelling. The best stories is that they don't always operate in the black and white. The villain is not always necessarily straight up evil. Now. I think Colonel McCulloch definitely skews to that side. I mean, 
historically this movie invokes all kinds of different ages of time. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got scenes of him, you know, making the symbol of the cross in front of his troops, almost like acting like he's a God. I mean, they call themselves the alpha and the omega. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's written on the American flag to which they're almost worshiping. Um, there's, there's just so much imagery taking place there. Um, you know, whipping, having Caesar beaten and tortured and whipped and crucified. I mean, it's almost like Colonel McCulloch is Pilate in, in mm-hmm. many ways from the Bible, uh, the man who persecuted Jesus. And I just, at the same time, part of his reasoning makes sense. <laughs> like, he's right. You know, he's right. If humanity doesn't stop the flow or the, the, the spread of this virus that is turning them in devolving humanity, essentially, then they're going to be wiped out. They're going to become mindless apes for lack of a better term. And I think it's such a brilliant concept that the fear of losing their humanity, which is being tied to their speech in, mm-hmm. in many ways and somewhat their intelligence is being fought for by losing their humanity in their caring about others lives. It's yeah, it's gosh, it's, it's incredibly deep. And so that's why I love him as a character. And I just, I think nail, I think Harrelson nails it. And, and yeah. it was so fantastic. I can't imagine anybody else in the role. Um, and, and like you, I love that last scene as well. When he, I love the way in which he goes out. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if Caesar well, had popped him it's it's delicious irony it been different. I, I love how you worded that that they are fighting for this ideal by being the worst version of who they are you know they're becoming inhuman in order to preserve their humanity mm-hmm. and as a side note I just want to say the to go back to Dawn gosh all, all these names are getting in you know <laughs> the middle one because <laughs> they all end with Planet of the Apes at some point um, the the viral marketing that 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 Don produced back in 2014 was phenomenal. There's a website called uh, uh, what's the flu called? Simeon. Uh, Simeon. Simeon. Flu. I keep wanting to call it Simmerillion because we're in like this epic fantasy word type thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But 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 there's but there's this there's this website dedicated, and you can go to it that talks about the prevention as if it actually exists as a means to kind of set you up for what Don's about. What I thought was cool and very interesting is the notion that it has a secondary feature to the virus and that it takes away speech, that it devolves the humans. Um, I thought that was interesting that they included that, that they added that piece to it because it helped to push that third act, that subplot of what was going on here. And I think that that's what helped give weight to to the colonel as a character because up to that point all it did was just kill people off you know and so how are you gonna you know it now has a secondary feature that's doing more than just killing it's taking away something that is incredibly valuable but yeah i love the irony of it i I love the fact that we have all that that type of theme of trying to preserve humanity by becoming inhumane um as a result and all the you know, all the biblical stuff that was used. I think there's a lot of purpose to that. I think that most people who live in the Western world are familiar with the biblical stories. They've, you know, they've read 
portions of the Bible and they know the Moses story. They've seen been, you know, they've seen Charlton Heston and they've seen um, the Ten Commandments. And so I think that those epic tales are an incredible way to to tell your story. And I, I love the fact that uh, the creative team behind this was not shy about using those types of themes, using those same kind of storytelling elements and calling back to those things because they know how familiar they are to the audience. And what that says to me as an audience member is that they say, hey, you guys aren't dumb. We're totally going to use these types of themes and call back to those stories that you're familiar with to tell ours. Yeah, there's a great article out there right now online by a writer named Alyssa Wilkinson, and she writes for Vox.com. And I'm gonna quote some of the some of the quotes that I'm gonna mention here are, are actually I got them from her article, and I just want to promote her article and direct everybody to it because we're gonna talk just briefly about some of the points that are made regarding the the biblical epicness and the historical uh, references that are made in apes and. We got a lot of this from her, her article, and, and she says it so well that I want everybody to go read it because it is really a fantastic piece. So look her stuff up when, when you're done listening. But it's interesting you mentioned Charlton Heston, Patrick, for a couple of reasons. One, because Charlton Heston was in the original Planet of the Apes, so yeah. how fun is that? Yeah. Uh, but also because Matt Reeves, the director of uh, this version of Planet of the Apes, actually specifically was quoted as using that as inspiration. He said, we watched bridge on the river Kwai, one of my all time favorite movies, by the way, we watched the great escape, another favorite. We watched biblical epics because I really felt like this movie had to have that biblical aspect to it. Mm -hmm. We watched Ben Hur. We watched the 10 commandments, Charlton Heston. When you surround yourself with something that feels emotionally right, there are connections that make sense to you that somebody else might not see. Those films, he says, is what informed War's "quote unquote" vibe. So, and it, yeah, it it's like obvious, that. right? It's obvious, and I love that he went that direction. And he put so much effort into surrounding himself and consuming previous films that had worked with the same emotional resonance that he was going for, and let that inform the decision making. Yeah. So, what he does on a different level is something that I experienced last week at the 48 hour film project. One of the problems we had last year was trying to come up with the beginning, middle and end to our story. And, and I fully admit that, that it's kind of a confusing tale. We were trying to do more with less. And this year I made the decision. We're going to have a beginning, a middle and an end, and we're going to use a formula that is familiar to an audience. So that way what we can do is then add elements that are going to expand on that, that are going to make it funnier, that are going to make it, uh, more interesting or m more um, entertaining in some ways. And I think Matt Reeves does the same thing. I think that I remember reading, I think it on the IMDb trivia page that when he was asked to direct, I don't know if he was asked to direct or he, or he asked to direct the second film. Um, he said that he wanted to write the story of Dawn and not the story of war. Like he had war in mind, or the studio execs wanted to tell that story, and he was like, I'll do that, but I want to tell this story first, because he felt like Caesar's story needed a middle component. He felt like that was kind of a dramatic jump into, into war, 
And so he created Dawn, which I thought was a fantastic decision Mm -hmm. because, yes, would it have been a a good story? Sure. But I think it would have turned into that kind of somewhat shallow, epic battle, bad guy, you know, whatever. We would have gotten some of those same elements, but some of the scenes that were very poignant and some of the scenes that provided that emotional connection probably wouldn't have been there had we not seen that middle story. And I think that we would have had probably a less, maybe a more fizzled out third story. Because you mentioned earlier that a unique thing about this trilogy is that the third movie is equally as strong as the first and second. It just almost as just, you know, the strongest. But I think Matt Reeves does a great job at being able to take a formula that is familiar, that works, that people know, and adding his own particular way of storytelling to it bringing in the apes, you know, or I say bringing the apes by telling it from an ape's point of view, by giving us this sense of, you know, asking the question of what is humanity. I think that's, I think that's smart storytelling that we, I think that's what we mean when we talk about stories being refreshed in that you need a place that's familiar to your audience, uh, unless you're Christopher Nolan and you can do whatever you want. Uh, so, but for most directors, for most storytellers, for me as, and someone who's trying to tell, good stories I have to start from a place that's familiar to my audience so that I can get their trust and I think Matt Reeves does that in a fantastic way yeah I definitely do as well and I mean oh man he he just I am so excited now for the new Batman movie because it's now in his hands Mm -hmm. and with that being my favorite superhero um, with Affleck still sticking sticking on board to play the role with what we've heard about that new Batman film, solo film, it's going to be Detective Batman, uh, and that's going to be the, the the direction they take. I Matt Reeves has become a director. I want. I'm I'm looking at like I'm I'm excited about anything he makes and he touches. Now he has proven himself to me uh, beyond what I what I expected um, in such a great way. The uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention about the biblical epicness of this is. I mean, obviously, we we mentioned some of the imagery. There are just so many moments where the the apes walk in like slaves. I mean, there's points where the films call back to um, the Egyptian enslavement of of the Israelites. That's what it really feels like. It's like Pharaoh is like a colonel, and he's like lording over them, making them work. Um, Those are some of the most emotional moments in the movie when the apes... Uh, when, when Caesar stops the other apes from being whipped and, and takes that on himself, right? And the other apes start to stand up and then they realize, okay, we're not going to, we don't, this isn't going to work. We have to, to band together. And then it becomes kind of more the war slant of the great escape or the mm-hmm. great, the great ape escape, the grape, grape, the ape escape. Um, <laughs> sorry. There, there's waiting for one of us to say there's that. some really good puns in this movie. Ape, ape, ape apocalypse now. Um, I love seeing that written in the sewers, but the Egyptian stuff, there's, there's scenes that evoke the American civil war, um, Mm -hmm. and also the civil rights movement and also the Holocaust. It's just, it's really incredible how it's well done. And of course, most of the, the ending really pays homage almost to the story of Moses having freed the Israelites and, you know, journeyed across this long desert with them to reach the promised land. 
mm-hmm. uh, to where they were going to be safe. The God's you know chosen place for them to where they could be yeah. free. And much like Moses, Caesar doesn't make it right. He, yeah. He's not able to see that. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's just incredible how someone can put that in and use it for storytelling purposes without necessarily trying to preach or, mm-hmm. or callbacks to get people to believe a certain thing based on the text that it comes from mm-hmm. being the Bible in this case. And it, and yet it's instantly recognizable. Well, and that last scene does something very interesting and maybe you can help me with this because for some reason, I don't know why I like this as much as I did, but I, I did. And it's the last shot of the film. It's just after Caesar has passed on and the, the camera, it, it, I don't know if it pulls back or if it just cuts to a scene from behind and we see the, you know, we see the big land and all the, all the apes, but it slowly pans upwards towards the sky. But if you look at the bottom of the screen, you see people, um, his, his band of, of his cohorts, his gang, members of them, the, the survivors, looking back and seeing him and they're reacting to his death and they start coming towards him. But we don't linger on that by any means. It's almost as if his story has ended with his uh, relationship with, um, I think it's Maurice, right? The, um, yeah, Maurice is yeah, the orangutan. Yeah, yeah the orangutan. And, and so when that shot goes up, it's almost as if Reeves is saying, okay, I don't want to linger on this anymore. His story is complete and now it's time to move on. And I, I'm trying to figure out why I love that shot so much because you would expect when you see people, when you see people, when you see these apes react, you expect to kind of hang on them and to see maybe close-ups of, you know, his son or other you know, other familiar faces from, from the film kind of see him and then maybe it goes to black. But for some reason, Reeves decided I'm going to just pan up and we're going to just keep it going. And I think for me, it felt like it was a reminder to us that yes, this is a story of Caesar, but it was also the story of ape manatee, <laughs> not humanity, but ah. this, I don't know. Um, and I don't know. I just, I love that shot. I love the fact that they didn't linger, that it wasn't, it's almost as if he said this, this wasn't the important piece, that there's something bigger mm-hmm. going on and that the promised land, that, that place that they were trying to get to, to start fresh, to begin a new life as a new civilization to boldly go where no man has gone before. Sorry, I'm trekking into other territory, but that, that shot just really sat with me and I thought it was different and I enjoyed it, but I still can't put my finger on why necessarily. Well, I don't really know why that would be either. I know that I adore that scene, and I was in tears. I'm not going to lie. When when Caesar is dying and, and he sheds a tear in a close-up before taking his final breaths, having you know hidden his injury from his best friend all the way across. I mean – I literally, I mean, I, I tell you, I, I can get choked up just talking about it. Like imagining Maurice's face when he is shocked to see Caesar's injury and realizing what is happening. Um, but I think for me, again, it, it harkens back to that biblical epic story of Moses. And 
the idea, and Alyssa Wilkinson points this out in her article, it's it, the point is that the story was not ever about Caesar. I mean, it was. It's Caesar's journey. Specifically, this movie is Caesar's journey. It's a huge character arc. And, and my goodness, the fact that we have so much care about an ape character in a movie series is amazing. But um, what is pretty incredible here is that just as in the Bible, Moses does not actually get to go in, right? And so it's almost like there's there's that line where um, I think it's Maurice who says about his son, he says, he will know your name. And that's what reminds me of the story the most because yeah. Moses' efforts, um, it, it says in the Bible, no one has ever shown the mighty power or perform the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And that's mm-hmm. what I get from Caesar's story is that Caesar's story is over and was never the point. It was where he led them to. That mm-hmm. was the point. And I think the way in which that final shot is framed really nails that down. That makes sense. Yeah. And those are great last lines. Um, I, I think particularly the the fact that Maurice has not talked up till then. Mm. I yes. love that his first word is Nova, first of all. I, I think that was his first word. And then his last words to his best friend are, your son will know what you did. Right. Your son That's will know was. who you are. And to me, that just, it reminds me that words can be powerful in that if you talk too much, you miss, you might miss some of the important things that are said, that sometimes a few words are enough. I particularly loved the combination of sign language and dialogue, like actual words. I thought that what could have been a throwaway kind of fun thing, you know, that we know about apes and being able to learn signs became a strategic maneuver to have allow them to escape from where they were. You know, that, that Caesar was like, you know, doing all, uh, and particularly when he was in the rock quarry or whatever. And he was like, they were saying like, you know, 37 and then 55. And I'm like, what are they throwing numbers out there for? And he goes, ah, 37 steps to the adult cage, 55 to the, to the kids. And I just, wow. I mean, that just goes to show you how strategic and how, how much of a leader he is, not just being a leader of this, this tribe of apes, but also he's incredibly smart. And even the Colonel says that like three, almost, I think you at least twice you are brilliant or you are Mm -hmm. impressive. You are an impressive. He says you're impressive several times. And I'm like, yeah, he is. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I wish I was his owner, you know, or whatever. I wish I was his friend. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I think you're right. I think that's probably why the shot resonates with me so much. Well, I don't want to go on super long, but there are a couple more things I want to briefly touch on that, that were super important to me. One of which was the relationship between Caesar's crew. This is what takes the movie to level 10 for me or to five of five stars is that it's not just Caesar. That's incredible. Um, you can have a movie with a great protagonist and a great antagonist and middling characters in between. But since the beginning of this trilogy, I have always had a deep affection for Maurice. 
from the very first time that we meet him, the way in which he is a mentor, the way in which he is a grounding for Caesar, um, uh, an advisor, and truly like a best friend. I I love the line where Maurice in this movie says, must think, it, Caesar's captured, right? And Maurice is now trying to be the one to make decisions, which is not his role. He's always kind of avoided that. He doesn't like that. He says, must think, what would Caesar do? And I actually wrote down in my notes, WWJD, because that's what it reminded me of. It was like, what would right. Jesus do, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But man, the the whole group here of Maurice, Rocket, Luca, uh, and I think, I think that's the three that go with yeah. him, yeah. right? The way in which they turn to follow him and they say, no, listen, we're not letting you go away. They all have an incredible moments. None of them are thrown away. None of them are just killed off for, for kicks, right? Mm-hmm. It all matters. Um, Luca, I believe it is at one point oh, wow. when he dies, um, yeah. you know, he makes, he makes a great remark as well. He says, at least this time I was able to protect you. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, <laughs> oh, I keep saying I get choked up when I talk about it, but I really do. I mean, I just thinking back to the, the emotional impact of, of all of those, those guys and rocket rocket without hesitation, without even a blinking an eye walks straight into the camp. Yeah. And gets himself beaten nearly to death. Yeah. Because he knows that he needs to do that. They cared that much about him as a friend and as a leader. And I just, I cared more about the relationship of these four apes with each other Mm -hmm. than I have in 90% of crew up movies that I've seen. (laughs) So this is, this rivals Dom and his crew in the family. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I I'm with you in that. I, I think I connected a lot with Luca I love, and, and, and it really it boils down to just enjoying the the type of ape that within this trilogy. I love the gorilla. I think the gorilla is a fantastic. I love winter. winter. Winter was. I did too, and such a tragedy. I know. I wanted winter to because it was a he was redemption. A great, you wanted yeah. redemption. I did too. Yeah. And he, um, but Luca in his death, I think was what I was saddened with more than anything. Uh, not in the movie, but of the deaths in here, his was the one that I, um, that I, I just kind of, my heart broke because of the fact that I remember him from the very beginning, you know, and being that, that caged gorilla that, that, that Caesar frees. And it's, it's so cool to see this companionship between these, these four individuals because they are from the beginning. So to go back and watch rise and to see how these weren't just maybe it was for the director at the time because it wasn't Matt Reeves. He didn't do the first one. But mm-hmm. I love how Matt stitches their relationships together through the course of these three or these last two films that in the first one, it's just a nice little cornucopia of different types of apes. You got, you know, you got the gorilla, you got the orangutan, you got the bonobos, you know, what's well, cool, whatever. But by the end, by this film, they matter and it's not just having a cool band of a variety of of apes they are now characters they are not just pawns on that chessboard as you 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 mentioned earlier in 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 your own way but they all had a purpose and every purpose was valuable even bad ape i mean bad ape to me 
was he brought the levity needed for the film. I mean, this could have been a Debbie Downer the whole way through, and he brought the appropriate amount of humor and sincerity and I think real, um, in his own way, heroics to mm-hmm. to this group. In a lot of ways, I think he helped kind of f- you know fill the role in his own way that Luca, uh, his death was lost. You know that that bad ape came in and and he did what he needed to do. But more than anything, I think his role from a humor standpoint, from an audience perspective was just as valuable. It was necessary. I think it was necessary for us because we've been dealing with so much tragedy and having those moments with him brought some, brought some very much needed levity to the film. Completely agree. I think it's a, it's a master master class, honestly, in, in how to put in the humor that isn't like overly done or doesn't take you out of the moment as needed without it doesn't change the whole tone of the film it's perfectly placed right when you need it so that it it lets you it lets up just just enough because this is a bleak 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 movie i mean it is Mm -hmm. downer from the get-go all the way to the end um until that final scenes of 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 hope but i loved bad ape as well man i i thought i thought he was fantastic and and uh, even the CGI specifically the way in which he comes out with wearing that coat and just immediately, <laughs> I know he's so puppy cute vest. and he the cute. Vest. <laughs> he just immediately allows you to connect with him and to care about him when he, the first thing he does is he sees the girl and gives the coat away, right? Mm-hmm. He's giving and he's caring right off the bat. He's like, no friends, friends, stay friends. Like I have friends. I want to mm-hmm. be your friend. <laughs> um, so I, I really enjoyed his character so much. And I thought when I found out afterwards that it was Steve Zahn, I was surprised because <laughs> no. I don't care for Steve Zahn. He's usually too zany and kind of over the top goofy humor to me. And he was really reserved here and much more emotionally affecting than I thought. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I dug him and the blue vest is cool because it's one of several Easter eggs. There's that's one of the vests that the apes wear in the original Planet of the Apes series. Um, for those that have any interest in this timeline, uh, I recently purchased the full set of old Planet of the Apes films, and I'm going to be revisiting them. Uh, it's a it's different <laughs> going back. <laughs> I'll say that it's it's a lot different, um, but it is kind of fascinating to me. I looked up the timeline, and it is bonkers. Like it's hard for to, to keep it straight, but these things do tie in. They are prequels. And for those that uh, had this knowledge going in, I did not remember this cause I had not seen the original film since I was in high school, Patrick, but Nova and uh, Cornelius, who is mm. Caesar's son. That's the name he gets right before Caesar dies. Yeah. I believe. Well, no, he's, he's given the name. Or already. he's given the name already. Yeah. Um, but but they are critical pieces of the original movies. And so there's points in time where Cornelius and Nova at one point in the storyline travel back in time. And so I'm excited, honestly, about where they could go with this because it could it could it's le- it's leading up to some of the older Planet of the Ape films. And we could we could have a scenario where it, it kind of remakes some of those and they do mm-hmm. you have to go back and reset things. And I mean, at this point. I'm all in for that. I, I well, trust I, the team completely. 
Well, I, I do too, but at the same time, I'm pretty satisfied with this trilogy. I am. I am as like, well. Like, yeah, if I would, it ends, I would, I'd be I, fine too. I would love to see this thing packaged up and be like, this is this is the story that we wanted to tell. And, you know, I think you mentioned either offline or maybe before we even get started that this this is definitely up there in the pantheon of great 21st century trilogies. Um, a complete story where each film feels like it builds on the last and it, it I don't think any film feels like a throwaway. Rise feels like an origin story. It feels like a new hope or the force awakens. And that's okay because elements from that bleed into the second, that bleed into the third. And I think as a whole, it's just, I want to hold it and be like, this is a great trilogy. And, and this is definitely up there for me in terms of being one of the, uh, one of the better ones in the last, uh, in the last you know 20 years. I agree. Well, there's a ton of stuff I could talk about. I mean, there were so many great quotes and moments in this film that I could just, I would love to just sit here and reminisce and go through them all. But um, in the interest of time, why don't we move on to our connecting points? Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Sounds great. Cool. Well, I remember texting you, Patrick, when I came out of the theater or maybe it was actually while I was in the theater <laughs> uh, because I was in the back and there weren't very many people there. So I could take notes on my phone during the movie, which is cool. I like it when that happens. Um, so I, I sent you a text and it said, can I please have 10 connecting points? <laughs> this is toward the end of the film. <laughs> I stand by that statement. I had so many moments of genuine emotional connection to this movie whether it was Luca's death or you know, mm. Rocket or Maurice at the end of the film with when Caesar dies, um, the, some of the, the scenes between the Colonel and Caesar, those those speeches and those interactions, uh, the the scene in the, the cave and the waterfall at the very beginning to the mm-hmm. opening battle, like there's just a ton of them. Like I mean, it was it was that good to me. I mean, clearly is my favorite movie of the year, so it's gonna that's that's why. The one that I, I settled on, though, is the one that I feel best summarizes the story as a whole. And we haven't even talked about this character yet. And that's Nova. That's the little girl. The mute the girl. Mute. The yeah. mute girl that they find and they rescue. And almost by accident, kill her father. <laughs> it was just, again, we don't know very, that's her father. Or we don't know that. Some sort of a caregiver. It seems okay. like, but I mean, and granted he, he does raise a weapon to try and sure. attack them. So it's not unjustified, but it's, it's a moment. Of, it's another moment of tragedy and kind of a realization when they are finding her that mm-hmm. this is a world that has gone bad completely. Like they've, they've now had to kill this person who's probably a deserter and actually a good person, you know, in, in reality. Yeah. So they meet Nova and Nova has this integral part to the story is of just kind of being a piece that, up till up until this moment that is my connecting point she is just there to kind of push that story forward that idea where we get to the explanation of why someone would be mute but she slowly bonds with the apes she she begins to trust them they show all kinds of motherly and fatherly qualities to her and so in that moment at the end when she just walks out into the middle of the compound to go to Caesar. Caesar has been beaten. Uh, he's been tortured. 
and I believe at this point the colonel has said, if he makes it through to the morning, kill him, or something like that, right? They're not expecting him to live through the night at this point. They have starved him. They've hurt him. It's very reminiscent of what I would say is someone washing Jesus' feet on the cross is what it felt like almost um, at times. She's going up to take care of him. She wants to save him. She wants to, to, to show love to him and she goes out there and she goes to and she gives him water right she knows that the apes need him that there's no way they're going to get this thing done without caesar and so she goes to him and she gives him the water and then what i love is the apes behind her they call to her and they she goes over to them they give her grain and she takes him the grain and starts feeding him and in the background you see them kind of rising up and they do the ape together strong thing, and mm-hmm. and I I lost it, man. I'll tell you, I may or may not have shoved my hands up in the air with my fists together in the middle of the theater, because well, you're in the back of the theater. I was. The yeah. Well, sorry, in the middle. I was in the middle of the back. Um, but yeah, I <laughs> I was I was in in that moment. I wanted to be there. I wanted to help, and she does the ape together strong symbol, and it just mm-hmm. it put me in tears. Patrick, I I thought it was such a beautiful action by her that I completely overlooked the somewhat farsity of her being able to walk into the camp. It didn't even register with me. And I've heard that be like one of the very minor criticisms I've even heard of the movie. But because of the emotional impact with her and with the apes in captivity who were so clearly knowing that they needed to get their leader up and running so he could, he, so they could, they could help him or help him so he could help them. Um, Gosh, it's just it, it it totally floored me. Yeah, well, I can't disagree with you. There were a ton of moments that connected with me emotionally, and they elevated as the as the film went on. I I I got emotional when um, when Caesar saw his wife and son killed. Uh, I got emotional when when you know when Luca died and. And there were so many just small points that you go, how, how can this, (laughs) how can this just get better? And for me, my moment is the exact same one as yours. I think it, what it did for me, um, I want, I want to believe this has actually happened. I don't think it did. But one thing I noticed throughout most of Dawn and then most of, war was Caesar's face. It was always a scowl. Mm-hmm. It was always a brood, you know, cause he was always serious. You know, the only time I think he ever softened his face was when he was hugging his son Cornelius or when he was embracing his family. And so when they were killed, that was the face you got that brooding face all the way through never changed. It was either a brooding face or a sad face. And I think, again, I want to believe this, that when she brought him water and he drank it, that he smiled hmm. and that same smile existed at the end, right before he died as a way to almost relieve himself, like release this, this weight that was on him. And I think in that moment when she gave him that help and that began the third act, essentially that, that lifted a weight for him. And I felt that weight lifted on me too, because I've experienced his story just, sequentially you know watching these things almost back to back and 
so the weight was lifted on me because I'd been on this journey with him. But the other thing that I really connected with about that scene was her helping him, I think, gave him redemption when it came to the connection between apes and humanity. You know, that thing that he lived for, that thing that he held on to, he had told the rocket, he said, I am like Koba. I can't let go of this hatred, yeah. hatred that I have. And then I think with that moment with Nova, he was able to be reminded of what he believed in. He was able to be reminded of that redemption that could be had through her, this little girl who saw him not as the enemy, but as a friend. And then later on, of course, we had that great moment with her and Maurice where she's asking, am I an ape? Am I an ape? And that's when he gives her her name. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's another biblical thing. You know, when you're, when you're given a name biblically, that's a huge deal. And she's trying to find identity. She doesn't know yes. who she is. Right. And so he gives her that name. So that was, that was a close second in terms of my connecting point. But I think that moment with her and Caesar said everything that, that you mentioned. And it also just brought us back to that place that not just about unity between apes and humanity, but that we're all valuable. We all apes and humans are valuable in this, in this world. And, um, you know, I think it brought that redemption back for him. So that's why I enjoyed it the most. I think good stuff. I, you know, it's not always that we have the same one, but when we do, it's, it must be a pretty powerful one and I'm, I'm not surprised. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'll do it with you. Yeah. Ape together, Ape strong. together strong. All right, listeners. Well, that's going to wrap this episode up for us. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you if they want to continue the conversation about war for the planet of the apes or brainstorm or <laughs> movies in general, Christopher Walken, where can they find your impressions? How do they get a hold of you? If you want to know where you can find me, you can check out the three places on the social media webs <laughs> at uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm usually hanging out in those three places. Uh, you can also find out more about me at my website, thisispatch.com. If you want to find out more about the show, if you've just tuned in, we're glad to have you. And uh, you can find out more about us, about why we do what we do, and uh, past episodes, good writing from our Feel and Film contributors on our website, feelandfilm.com. There's also a big, 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 big community, uh, at least big egotistically speaking. I think we're amazing. In, uh, in the Facebook world, we have a Facebook group that you can reach either from our website or from our Facebook page, facebook.com slash feelandfilm. That's where we discuss a lot of what the the what's going on in the world of movies articles that pop up reviews of films that we've either covered or we haven't uh we've got a great voice in uh of you know a diverse voice out there that we have a ton of people that contribute in terms of uh, those types of conversations so if you want to join that discussion feel free to find us there join the group and uh and start your own discussion next week we are finishing out i believe the uh the theater marathon that we've been doing what's the right. last four in a row uh, baby four, four in a row this is i think a, a record for us and we're finishing it out strong with chris nolan's dunkirk which is getting a huge amount of positive press and i'm excited about that and it's also uh his shortest film to date besides his original short film which obviously would be shorter and so i i know from uh from 
from what you guys know about us and having a whole month dedicated to the director, we're definitely excited about discussing this apparently different kind of film than we're used to from from the world of Chris Nolan. Maybe not. We'll see what we get. But uh, yeah, next week we're going to be covering Dunkirk. Yep. I'm super, super excited. Um, you know, as soon as I can just switch gears and get my head out of the Planet of the Apes, I'll be able to focus on this one. Hopefully I can do that soon. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, we'll see. Uh, I maybe an ape will show up in Dunkirk and help him get off the beach. I don't know. That would well, be... you, it, there's a war going on apparently, right? So there is. You know, there's that connection. Very similar. Okay. Well, <laughs> if you'd like to find me on social media, you can find me all over as well at Aaron L White, A A R O N E L W H I T E. That's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., etc., etc. Also, next week before Dunkirk. Um, we will be dropping a feeling it spoiler free review on Valerian and the city of a thousand planets. So I'm pretty excited about seeing that Patrick. I'm taking my daughter. She was jazzed. Um, if anything, I know it's going to be gorgeous and it's going to be cray cray and that's <laughs> good gonna enough. Be epic too. That's going to be epic fantasy science fiction. You know, I, I've heard it's not phenomenal, but it's gosh, it's getting pretty darn decent reviews. Uh, much I'm better than I, much better than I expected. And it's something that I think that the, the world needs is more inventive original sci-fi and some of the ones have really bombed in recent years even the ones i've liked have bombed Um, and so i'm hoping this one will make some money and be pretty good and and recommendable so check the feed on i think friday morning uh before uh, friday morning of valerian's release date and the the quick little spoiler free episode will be out you can listen to that and find out what we thought and whether we think it's worth going to see I guess that's about it, my friend. Enjoyed the conversation as usual. Me as well. Thanks, listeners, for being here with us. We really do appreciate it, and we love interacting with you. So hope to talk to you soon. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film.